0: You are listening to episode 51 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Ah! During the 1990s, the new queer cinema movement found its very own Sid Vicious in the form of Greg Araki, who wasn't concerned with being tagged into anyone's narrow definition of normality with jagged films such as The Doom Generation and Totally Fucked Up. Roll on the new millennium, and with it, Mysterious Skin. In no way less controversial than his 90s output, Mysterious Skin would find Araki being heaped with mainstream critical praise and bring us a star-making performance from Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Had cinema's punk rock provocateur gone soft? Not quite. With calls for the film to be banned, Iraqi had
1: subversively brought his brand of fuck you to polite society. In two previous episodes on this podcast, we spoke about directors who were members of what's called the new queer cinema movement. We talked about Gus Van Zandt and we talked about Todd Haynes because we did Elephant and Safe respectively. Now we're talking about a man called Greg Iraki. Would you say, compared to those other two, or in compared to other people from the movement in general, he's a less well-known name? Maybe
0: no, but you had the Living End, you had totally fucked up. You had his Teen <laughs> Apocalypse trilogy. He yes. was an established name in the nineteen nineties, of course. With Mysterious Skin, he reached a certain crit- critical acclaim that he maybe didn't get earlier on. Mm-hmm. But Iraki always had kind of studio. He was always referred to as the punk filmmaker. Yeah, <laughs> and when Iraki was called up on this when he was asked about this he said So I don't really think of my movies as punk rock style in the sort of cliched safety pin through your nose kind of punk rock way. But I do think the punk rock spirit in general, the sort of DIY idea of creating this music in your garage was an uncompromised expression of sort of being true to yourself. And to me, that kind of establishes him. He is essentially a punk filmmaker. That's Mm. why he's kind of always likened with an earlier transgressive filmmaker,
1: John Waters. Yes. He was also dubbed poster boy of the new queer movement as well. And it was, his movies didn't just, deal with homophobia it was apathy as well apathy nihilism towards, apathy towards people's pain the kind of pain that's generally just ignored he looked at people who were very marginalized like sean baker another great film yep. we've talked about but iraqi was just never a name i'd ever really heard of before and when i looked through his filmography i hadn't seen anything else he had made this is your first one this is my first iraqi great film.
0: introduction i think it's probably as mo- weirdly as fucked up
1: as the subjects are it's probably mm. his most accessible film i'd say so almost most mainstream in a sense the one with the biggest actors i'd say if you were to pick any iraqi film this is the one that the mainstream audiences most likely would have seen and it is a very it's a great throughway into his filmography into his cinematic sensibilities
0: but as we were discussing this new queer cinema movement of the especially the 1990s 90s, 1980s, yeah. 1990s but prior to that there was this movement in especially mainstream film and it's called heteronormativity uh-huh, where they wanted that. to place homosexuality rightfully as in a domesticated situation to normalize it to show look these relationships are just like any heterosexual relationship but Rocky and his ilk Todd Haynes and now they took a more transgressive more subversive approach rather than saying look we are just like you We're going to show you the transgressive side of that. We're not going to bow to our oppressors. We're going to kill our oppressors, (laughs) which is a lot of Iraqi's work it does. It's very transgressive.
1: It's very skewering towards the discrimination. And it makes me think of when people talk about homosexuals being like like homosexual characters in films. And I've heard a lot of people say, oh, this character's gay. What's the point of that? Why does it need to have a point? Why can't a character just be gay? It's not some weird personality trait. It's part of who they are we talked about this when we did Elephant with Gus Van Zandt, you have a scene with a group of gay characters just talking about their feelings. It's as simple as that, just having them actually discuss what's going on. Not just homosexuality, but I thought masculinity in general as well. This idea of trying to reconcile homosexuality with masculinity, this idea that being, mas- uh, being homosexual in some ridiculous way makes you less masculine, totally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I think these are the kind of ideas that the new queer cinema movement really skewered, really addressed.
0: But they weren't concerned with being, as, as we said, heteronormativity, were hmm. they? They skewered that, they transgressed that. And I think uh, Crick summed this up, especially with Iraqis' The Living End from 92, which was essentially a road trip, fugitive HIV movie. Mm -hmm. The Living End was identified by critic B. Ruby Rich as a key film in the newly emerging new queer cinema movement. Rich described the film as an example of homo porno style which was a a style, an aesthetic, characterized by appropriation, pastiche, irony, as well as a reworking of history with social constructionism very much in mind. And I think that's what it's doing. That's what this film's doing. That is what Iraqis' kind of catalog of films are doing. They're not not settled with just being homosexual in nature. They want to provoke. They want to push. They don't want to be held down by an oppressive society. Mm -hmm. They fight back against that. Mm
1: Yeah, it's not the kind of film where when, when um, Brokeback Mountain came out, it was called The Gay Cowboy Movie. Yep. Like, that's not how it, He doesn't want this to be thought of as like, the gay kid movie or whatever. But <laughs> he said of this film, he said, because the book that it was based on yep. was written and uh, published in 1995. And this book, almost a decade later, and Araki himself said, I don't think I could have made Mysterious Skin 10 years ago when the book came out. Uh, it was sent, When it was sent to me for the first time, he says, my films really are an evolution, a snapshot of where my head is, at a certain time you have directors who are they don't like their earlier films because they didn't like what it represented at the time it kind of demonstrated their headspace so it's with Iraqi it's his evolution as a filmmaker so maybe if he had made this film around the time the book came out maybe it wouldn't have been as good it wouldn't have been as impactful he hadn't matured as much as a filmmaker to deal with its themes
0: you could say that but I would say he's more of a he's a complex filmmaker he is he's got his foot in both worlds he can make this critical acclaimed film such as Mysterious Skin but I don't think he sees it as better than
1: his you know? earlier work, for example. Different to his earlier work than when what? he said evolution, you're saying the next thing is getting more interesting, more complex. Right. Not necessarily it's a huge improvement, but it is kind of an incremental increase in quality.
0: Because very much like the cultural zeitgeist of the moment, where we have this non binary, this movement, this societal shift. Iraqi was doing this in the 90s. Yeah, he was he, doing this before. He, re- he refused to live in a binary world or simply straight versus gay. Mm-hmm. He is a wholly revolutionary filmmaker he was speaking about gender fluidity Mm -hmm. gender politics all these things this pansexuality for example way before this Mm. became in vogue
1: five, ten, however many years ago yeah and what i like is how he seems to focus on these issues he has a certain issue that he will take the movie to deal with i think a problem with a lot of films nowadays when they try to address these issues they don't try and address it they pay lip service to it they'll have a character have a throwaway line you think that's it that's the best you're doing like say, okay okay we'll make a line about a homosexual make a line about feminism will throw in a line about non-binary about transsexual feels thrown
0: in just for the hell of it. It's
1: it's basically uh, what can we put in this film that will make people, you know, what what can give us a round of applause? We what can a- we
0: tick off the list to get some brownie points? Exactly
1: right. Tick tick tick. Okay, we've ticked that, tick that, tick that. Let's just build a movie and then just throw a few of these lines in. The films aren't built around them. These things are crowbarred into the film to make it seem like they're actually more important more socially relevant than they really are
0: and those other films it feels tagged on it yeah. it, feels, it feels disingenuous where it doesn't with iraqi maybe that's because he comes from this world himself mm-hmm. he's a very non-conformist person in his personal life and he picks through Now, did you know, prior to this film, we were talking about, you know, early Iraqi versus mysterious skin Iraqi, if if there's such a (laughs) differentiation, but I don't know, right? But prior to this, for a while, he was working on a show for MTV called This Is How The World Ends, which he himself... Describes as a cross between Dawson's Creek and Twin Peaks. Mm. They did film a pilot, and I'm sure it's up on YouTube. Never got it picked up, never got off the ground. And I think, look, he's a perfect fit for MTV. Mm -hmm. His early films, the Doom Generation, they have very, very much got this frenetic, this pop culture. It's very Mm
1: MTV-like. Doom Generation does sound like a show that would have been on there. Again, it sounds like you would add, oh, your Beavis and Butthead now, some music videos, and then Doom Generation. Doom Generation is a great film. Exactly. It sounds like it fits perfectly. Perfectly in Rose McGowan, Rose McGowan, and (laughs)
0: almost Iraqis' muse—you could call him James Duval. If people aren't familiar with the name James Duval, they have seen him, Frank the Bunny from Donnie Donnie, Darko. That is James Frank. uh, That that is James Duval, who is pretty much in all of early Iraqis' films.
1: Hmm. He's very much, would you say, he's very much a kind of. Actor's director, in that he works with, he's not working with these big kind of high concept themes, he's working on a very human level. I that's think so. why a lot of his films work very well. And I
0: think that's what attracted a lot of people to this film. It did. Because, what, 2004? Yeah. 95 Scott Him novel. Mm-hmm. Now, Araki said he read this in 96. He was immediately drawn to it. As you said, you didn't think he had the, or he didn't have the wherewithal in mm. 96 to film
1: it. Maybe not, yes. And when it brought these other actors in, because you had, like, the lead Joseph Gordon-Levitt, yeah. his start, he got his start, he was in, you know, he was a kid actor. He was in Third Rock from the Sun. I actually like. that I really enjoyed that I did show, like it actually. It I got into it because I remember my mum used to watch it and I would watch it with her. I love that show. He did a film. He did 10 Things I Hate About You. Yeah. I think he'd done a film called, I think it was, like, Manic. And he was... Having trouble getting new roles, right. I think because he was really trying to push himself. He was trying to stretch himself. He'd maybe done studio films before. He wanted something interesting, and that's what drew him. Michelle Trachtenberg as well, who was in Prague at the time, working on. Did you ever see the film Euro Trip?
0: Of course, we, we grew up with them films. <laughs> right?
1: American Pie Road Trip, but basically going across Europe. The
0: most thing I remember about Euro Trip is Fred <laughs> Armisen in that train, saying "Scoozy,
1: Scoozy, me Scoozy, yeah. Scoozy." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's, yeah. that's mainly what I remember. Actually, somebody else is the song that was in that film that became famous scotty doesn't know oh, which yeah. is sung by matt damon that's on youtube i was listening to that's that. sung by matt it, damon it took my maybe well it's an, a singer that certainly sounds I'm literally like i think like i saw that <laughs>
0: film in probably 15 20 <laughs> I years i think
1: it was i think it was the same year as this it came out and so i watched it i remember watching it at uni but michelle Trachtenberg read the script wanted to get into it obviously it's completely different from euro trip but it's what really brought them in and joseph gordon levitt said "Iraqi gave him a chance to be in this film something he'd never done before he says what I really find special about this character he's sexy on the outside but underneath he's having a lot of problems Gordon Levitt said he's played like the funny kid he's played the awkward kid but here he gets to play the sexy guy which is what he's never done before
0: and it was a conscious decision to move in this direction a more daring direction because look as much as you know we're saying we like third from the sun you don't want to be the actor who's pigeonholed in those roles for your for the rest of your life Joseph Gordon-Levitt said when he read this script, he, he, he realized this was a script of love. Somebody had put the care and attention. Because most of the stuff he had read up to this point, he, he could detect the money in it. It was mm-hmm. purely for the financial gain, whereas this had the artistic intention behind it. And he said, going forward from this film, from Mysterious Skin, that is what he looked in, in scripts and directors after this film, because... You know, Mysterious Skin, it's a top-tier film.
1: It is, yeah. And he did get some work after this based on his work in this film. And he says, to this day, he still has people who will come up to him in the street and compliment him on on the performance in this film. This film from more than a decade ago, a decade and a half ago.
0: And this is how serious he took it. When they were in pre-production for this film, he used his own money... He flew Mm -hmm. to Kansas with Scott Haim, Kansas is where this film takes place, Mm -hmm. to find the roots of his character, you know, the locale, the accent, etc. He would take a video camera, become indebted to the the people of that area Mm -hmm. to kind of filter it through and find a way to play this character. And that's on his own dime, on his own money. There Mm -hmm. was no money in this film, basically. So it it says a lot when an actor does that. And Araki himself said, not about Gordon-Levitt, just about this film in general, he said... I never wanted the film to be too big Hmm. because it was fairly controversial material and I didn't want to have to water it down to make it palatable for a mini major type movie. So we ended up doing it
1: very old school indie style. You have to applaud the integrity of that because how many filmmakers nowadays will cut things, will censor things, will dumb things down just because the censors won't like it or because studios won't like it. I mean, this film was somewhat controversial Someone we'll get to later. later on, but you have to admire the confidence that Gordon Levitt had in Iraqi. Bear in mind, this is the first time he's worked with him to go out again on his own dime and not just try and play the character, but try and kind of become the character. Because obviously with this character, a lot of internal pain, I think Gordon-Levitt really worked to understand that and how that would inform his performance because it really does.
0: And we've also got Brady Corbett, mm-hmm. who plays Brian. He's a pivotal character in this film. Now, I didn't know much about Brady, Brady Corbett, I've no. got to admit, but he was in Michael Haneke's American remake of Funny Games, which yes. was a... Did you see the remake I, I've seen the original. Seen the original's the great. One, yeah. The remake's almost shot for a shot. Yeah. Shot oh, for okay, shot. Then, yeah. he, 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 made, he made it as... <laughs> directed it
1: as well. It's interesting that like, somebody remaking their own film into a different language, because I really liked Funny Games. I don't know I what the how, point would be, but... It was similar with Run, Lola, Run, how it plays around with time yeah, and right? how it plays around like, with, with the nature of that. But I didn't see the, the remake. But you say it's good,
0: the remake is really good. It's Haneke, so it's, it's, it's not like you've just got some Hollywood hack doing it.
1: Yeah, good point. It's actually someone who understands the source material. I,
0: don't know, I, I still don't think there's a point in remake. It? But, <laughs> not really, But no. it's good.
1: Brady Corbett, now that you mentioned it, this film, 2004, he did Thunderbirds Are Going this same year. Talk about a weird, a weird now, year. Now, you have mentioned
0: previously <laughs> yeah. you love the, the puppetry, the, the original Thunderbirds TV show. Yeah right <laughs> 2004 I yeah. never saw the 2004 film with adaptation Thoughts? Mm,
1: terrible, terrible. I, I I like it about as much as Jerry Anderson did. He hated it. His wife Sylvia liked it a bit more. But for me, it was like taking Thunderbirds, taking everything I liked about it, removing it, and still expecting me to like
0: Jerry it. Anderson. Obviously, being the creator of the original <laughs> Thunderbirds.
1: Yes, and Sylvia obviously a co-creator and worked with a lot of. And it the was models. live action as well. It wasn't was it? live action. Did not work at all. Ben Kingsley played the villain. I, for every good movie <laughs> Ben Kingsley's done, he's done about ten really bad ones. Yeah, he's he's one of those guys who could be like a top tier actor. And then he's like, as
0: you said, one good film, ten shit ones.
1: What is that about? He's got that thing that Donald Pleasant said. Donald Pleasant says the reason he had such a prolific filmography is that he never said no to a film he was offered. (laughs) You get the feeling Kingsley does the same thing except... I know. Well, Ben Kingsley didn't do Waking Fright or Halloween. I mean, he did Gandhi and other big films like that, but he just turns up in so much kiddie fair. Confession win. Confe- yeah, oh, I've never no. saw Gandhi yet. You never saw Gandhi? i still never seen Gandhi. Uh, Not could, recommendable. It could lose an hour. Could lose an hour? How many hours is it? My wife and I went through a binge where we were watching every film that won Best Picture. It's a good film, it's very historically. Historically relevant, but overall, man, it drags. There's something about biopics I just don't (laughs) gel well with me. Biopics are hard to do. There's so Mm. many that just water down the subject matter. You said before, Iraqi didn't want to water it down. That's why he wanted it to be a smaller film. They take so many biopics. I think the problem is they remove so much stuff they think will offend the person they're making it about or if they're dead it'll be their family or their friends people close to them so you get biopics which are so dishonest
0: or they just become a highlight reel of the person's life and he's like yeah we know that we could have just read the the, the little marks
1: of it exactly and then they'll just they'll put in a a few cards like like oh this happened this happened this happened I'm like well that's all just been summed up in a few seconds so none of
0: us are that <laughs> over the top about gandhi i've never seen it and i'm not that bothered but all right the story of this film
1: the story it's a story of two people two uh, people neil mccormick and brian lackey right oh, joseph gordon levitt mm-hmm. brady, corbett. brady corbett respectively yeah it's a pair of boys from kansas a place called hutchinson which actually scott heem who wrote the novel that is where I was actually from yes
0: um, which is why heem <laughs> heem took uh, joseph gordon levitt to
1: practice all that material makes total sense and the crux of the story is at the beginning they are both of them they are sexually abused by the coach of their little league baseball team right and then we cut to some time in the future 7 or 8 years later and we see them in young adulthood. And what the film does is it's checking, it's kind of checking back in on them and examining how their lives have been changed by this because their lives are both changed in very different ways. They had a similar experience, but they've gone to down two very different life paths. And we follow both of them, cutting back and forward and eventually, of course, the plot threads cross over. Right, right. And we're seeing what's happened to them, the effect this has had on them.
0: Now, what is interesting about this, now that, Synopsis that you have beautifully summed up there, Wayne. I have to say. I'm gonna give you a little applause. Thank you very much. But that could be anything. That could be your hallmark of the week movie. Yeah. But in Iraqis' hands, it is high art. Mm. It is transgressive, as we said, of his other films. It is interesting. It is filmed interesting. It looks interesting. It's act interesting. It's approached in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. So it's an elevation of the material. I've never read the novel, but I hear it's a very strong novel too. So mm-hmm. it's not a case of it's not bettering the novel, and I don't know if it's a poor stand-in for the novel. As I'm aware both are superior in their own art forms. Mm-hmm. So what makes this film special? It's got a very strong sense of aesthetic, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Now the colour is used fantastically as it is in most of Iraqi's films. In a lot of his earlier films, Doom Generation is very garish. It's very colourful. Yeah. And colour is used very well in this. You know, when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's on screen, he's very much adorned in red. Mm-hmm. Or he's in a, very much in a red environment. And not, you know, that's usually symbolic of a danger of something mm-hmm. not really going well. And then we've got Brian. Brian, his colour palette, let's say, is yellow and gold. And yes. Iraqi said, this was purposeful brian's house is a more loving atmosphere than the neil may have so it's a warmer color yellow gold it's warm
1: yeah i like how the aesthetic is kind of very much setting the atmosphere because we have a scene where neil when he's grown up now played by gordon levitt he's in the park very muted color he's kind of dressed down yeah. somewhat bit of red on his hat but everything looks very dull because neil does not like where he lives he no. aspires to leave he wants to go to new york city he wants to get out of there he very much hates Kansas the place.
0: too much too much of a small
1: area for him. He needs to leave. He needs the big city. He needs the hustle. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, he is, he's shot with kind of very dull, monochromatic colours in the background. But Brian, very much the opposite. We see him very bright, like you say, yellows. Even his house environment looks brighter. A lot of time... When, we're, Niels, when we're in Neil's house, a lot of time, many of the lights are off. Right. It's dark. A lot of takes place at night the opening scenes where we see the kind of impetus of the plot a lot of that is shot in very low light some lights here and there but it's mostly shot at night with some lights reflecting on them as well and you talk about garish colors some of brian's scenes some of the more pivotal ones they're shot in this very harsh blue color like projected right onto his face The
0: blue is cold it's cold Mm. it's atmospheric and as we're saying that's kind of contrasting the duality of each character neil is very much He's a teen prostitute. Yes. He services gents in the public bathrooms. Mm -hmm. But he's also played out that he's got little to no hope in his future. Mm -hmm. Whereas both of them experience the same thing. They've both been abused by their little league coach. And Brian, he can't process that on an emotional level. So he concocts a story of alien abduction. Mm -hmm. But also because he's kind of blacked out this abuse... It's also led him a different path because he's studying for university, isn't he? Mm -hmm. He's getting there. He's got a warmer house life. So it's asking those questions. Is it better not to know? Is it better to know? Mm -hmm. That's an important thing to this film.
1: It is. With Brian, he's retreated kind of into a world of fantasy like he's been pushed into it. We talk about the more colourful things. His life almost seems Mm -hmm. in a way kind of more upbeat and positive, more hopeful because he's always constantly investigating these alien abductions. He thinks he was abducted when he was young because he's missing like five hours of his life. Yes. Because we're introduced to him in like this storage mm-hmm. cupboard. He's got a bleeding nose. He's got no idea how he got there. Another but, great thing about the film, how it straight away puts us into his position mm-hmm. because we wake up in the cupboard with him. Yeah. We've got no idea what's going on. We've got kind of no background here. So we're solving the mystery along. I love when movies do that. They put you in the character's position so you have to solve the mysteries along with them so you're gathering clues as you go along. But that's,
0: uh, it, it, this is what's... The great thing about a film like this it shows it visually it's the aesthetics of the film because often the cinematography of this film it's all close up it's yes. all it's all point of view we're in the we're in the character's perspective because it's such an important topic i think we're to identify with those characters yeah. it's very much like a polaroid snapshot which is a pertinent part to this film polaroid snapshots cinematography and that kind of it expresses something in this film that elevates it, like we were saying with other stuff. And when you use cinematography in such a way to put yourself into the perspective of a character, you can emotionally identify with that. Maybe if you, if you were looking at it from a third eye perspective, a third, a third point
1: perspective, you may not. Mm-hmm because it's a very kind of personable film like you say with the close-ups on the face another film it reminded me of Body Double Body Double had a lot of close-ups Voyeuristic Voyeuristic had a lot of close-ups on the face of the lead like we were kind of looking into him and they were looking into us as well because obviously when the characters are staring they're usually staring at another character but because of where we're put it's like they're staring right into us because we need to identify with the characters in order to feel their plight in order to feel their pain and to understand it well the point of
0: view puts us in the shoes of our characters it's also have you, did you notice in this it's almost like this quasi dreamlike state mm. and now what could this be this could be interpreted as childlike it's yes. very dreamlike and why is that pertinent because much like the characters whom are stuck in their childhood trauma so we're seeing it almost from a childlike perspective this world
1: mm-hmm. and the score really backs that up as well it has a score i would call almost kind of ethereal ethereal that kind of very soft almost like kind of waves lapping and you'll hear one note on a keyboard rising I'll have a chorus of people all singing one note this might sound kind of strange but what it reminds me of is you know those clips on YouTube where you can have background music for studying Mm -hmm. background music for writing a lot of them are like that they're there to kind of put you at ease so you can open your mind and you can work it's like that it's like it's kind of lulling you almost into a false sense of security because even in some of the scenes where you're supposed to be quite shocked this music is playing
0: well there's the scores by Harold Budd and Robin Guthrie Mm -hmm. now Robin Guthrie tremendous musician from the Cocteau twins yeah have you ever heard of them? Cherry flavored funk. That's oh, a great yeah, I've song. That. That's <laughs> a great damn song. <laughs> it's a terrific song. But Harold Budd—he was—he comes from his background of the avant-garde and minimalist music, who worked mm. with the likes of Brian Eno from Roxy Music.
1: Brian right, Eno. So the very credential people there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The thing is, I feel the music is used sparingly as well. There's not a lot of scenes where it's used. I also like how the music isn't overdone. No. There's no dramatic scenes where this is overplayed, and it's like big, your big violins, which we've heard a million times before. Very ambient. Exactly. Sets the
0: mood. Sets the atmosphere. But also scored White Bird in a Blizzard, another Iraq, great oh, Iraqi film. I've heard about that as well. It's a great film. Great is it, film. Is Eva, Eva
1: Green. Is it a similar score? You would you say? Yeah, it's
0: that ethereal dreamlike it's the way. Yeah.
1: Because where situations where filmmakers don't have enough confidence in their in their storytelling abilities, they're trying to yank tears by doing. Doesn't having, do that. Never no, does Not that. at all by having an overdone score. It's not a
0: tearjerker of a film.
1: No, it's not. Not not on the surface. Not on the surface. In the thematics, yes. You know how one word I'd use to describe it: non sensationalist Absolutely. I've read a Absolutely. lot of reviews that said the same thing. This could easily have been a sensationalised film. It could have had big dramatic moments. It could have had scenes where characters are constantly screaming at each other, big arguments. But so much of it's not that. It's characters just talking. We witness what happened to them. We see them try to put the pieces together. We just follow them along. And I think that's what makes it more effective. But I've got a question for you.
0: Is that unsensationalist approach what also drove people to think of this as a controversial film.
1: I think it probably is, Because it's not
0: hammering certain things on the head. So do you think it upset a certain percent of people because they wanted the monstrosity, because they wanted the superficial anger?
1: It did. It did anger a lot of people. That's the thing. Araki's obviously smart enough to know that his audience is going to look at this and realise what was done to these boys was wrong. It was horrible, and it has scarred them for life. Any reasonable person watching of this course. would think that, but of course, because the movie didn't outright state that, because it didn't turn to the camera and say, this is bad. When the band Slayer, their controversial album, Rain in Blood, yeah. the song Angel of Death about Joseph Mengele, yeah. folk are annoyed because like, the song didn't state that Mengele was a bad guy. <laughs> Slayer were like, isn't it obvious he was a bad oh, guy? Jesus he was the Christ. angel of death in Auschwitz.
0: But in this case, Wayne, one of your favorite places that if our regular (laughs) listeners know, Mm -hmm. it was called the Australia Family Association Uh called for it to be banned (laughs) as it could be used by pedos for gratification or learn how to groom. Okay.
1: Let's unpack it. Do you okay. think a pedophile would have to watch this to learn how to groom? No. In fact, I've read about people, psychologists, who said a pedophile could watch this film and actually feel genuine remorse.
0: Well, film critics, smartly, Wayne, smartly. There are some smart people on this work. A fil- <laughs> the film critic Margaret Pomeranz yeah. expressed that the film does more for the case against pedophilia, mm-hmm. stating... People who indulge in crimes like that, if they saw this film, they would understand the damage that they do.
1: Exactly. Is that not fucking obvious? It is obvious. You'd think it was obvious, but because it's not stated outright. Do you think this Australian Film Association is very much one of those please think of the children kind of things? What I liked about it, this was my favourite factor, this very much exemplifies the stupidity we're talking about here. There was a guy, Richard Egan, he was a spokesman for the AAF. Listen to this. He was concerned... After reading the film's synopsis, not after seeing the trailer, not after seeing a screener copy. No, he just read the synopsis and assumed that, oh, well, it must be controversial. Because they were trying to get an 18 rating for, quote, adult themes, strong sexual violence and medium level sex scene. But, <laughs> but for some people, that wasn't enough. It's well, not enough that it's got an 18 rating. No, they wanted it banned.
0: Funnily enough, Joseph Gordon-Levitt doesn't see this film at all as being having having any sex scenes. No, it doesn't really. He says really. he says they're sexual scenes, but they're mm. not sex scenes in the traditional film sex scenes. They're not soft lighting. They're not erotic. Mm. They're no. used for. Uh, they're sexualized mm. without being sex scenes. If they're that makes sense, filmed,
1: acted out, and staged. Right in a very kind of pared back way you really don't see much happening you see the kind of the beginning maybe you'll see what's happened afterwards we don't need to see the act we talked about this when we seen when we talked about Miss 45 it's a rape revenge movie how much rape's in it? about 30 seconds yeah. worth because that's not what's important what's important are the ramifications we don't need to see this whole thing playing out ramifications
0: so, yeah. important to this film mm. but look if anybody's like oh you know it's still a bit <laughs> an iffy topic here we should I will state look protocols were taken so none yeah. of the children even you of the on screen abuse mm. using Ed in and even a dummy look there is a scene when the coach whos an abuser places his head onto it onto the child mm-hmm. and you know, that's a dummy. Even in that scene, and he's just placing his head on the child, it's not even the child.
1: I noticed that because when he was lying on it's it. not breathing. You, it, it's not, yeah, there's, there's no moving up and down of the chest. And
0: even the children, a different script was even used for the children, whom were even unaware of the abuse taken
1: part. Yeah. How much more do you want to know that this is not a movie that in any way glorifies or celebrates paedophilia? The director did everything he possibly could not to expose the children to this. It's like when Kubrick made The Shining. Is it true that the kid that played Danny Torrance didn't even know it was a horror film? Right. Because certain parts of the script were omitted you you wouldn't have even thought stanley kubrick would have give the shit <laughs> considering <laughs> that not how he treated, treated Shelley duvall, duvall. exactly exactly but with this film the controversy doesn't make sense to me i think any sensible person can watch this but it's almost like that video nasty thing like but, when they think this is this is an element of the film paedophilia is an element yeah. oh my god we must think of the children we must have this ban. no watch the film and you will understand it Idiots, 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 complete idiots, morons. <laughs> think <laughs> it, of another objective. It is, it's funny because it's, it's, <laughs> Australia is—it's famous for banning, especially video games. But yeah, with a lot of films, they just—the censors seem very jumpy. To be fair, this was a kind of a film association that. I, I
0: think Larry Clark's Ken Park is possibly still banned in Australia because they have one of the most, in the you know the Western world, mm-hmm. one of the most toughest, strictest. Censoring laws.
1: I oh, do. Is kids still banned? Is kids banned over there? I you have think? no idea. Because I've seen, I haven't seen that one. I've seen kids though. I mean, like, you could argue kids as kind of a more sexualized film. You you spent time in
0: Australia. You you lived there for a while. Mm-hmm. What's the reason What's the reason? Why why are they culturally, or at least the government anyway, so culturally strict? I'm not sure if it's a
1: it's a, a A protection of the youth kind of thing, because I only went to the cinema a couple of times. I didn't see anything you'd consider even really remotely controversial. I'm not sure why it's so obsessive with that. There are certain parts of the world you can understand. They made bad marks. Exactly, they did Wake and Fright as well. Absolutely brilliant film. Road Games. One of of our favourite films that we've spoken about. I love Road Games. absolutely adore Road Games. But Road Games isn't that controversial. No, it's not really either. And this film shouldn't have been, that's what's so annoying. This film should not have been controversial. This shouldn't even have been an issue. But
0: why is it controversial? (laughs) If we discuss what what could these purple interpreters Mm. controversial, which we don't, right? Thematically, you know, our... characters it's kind of would you say this film above anything else our two central characters neil and brady who are both coping with this childhood sexual abuse they both have a difference in the way they cope don't Mm -hmm. they you would would you say neil is almost accepting yeah he's come to terms with the past he's come to terms with what has happened doesn't mean it's not affecting it is very much affected Mm -hmm. him whereas brady as we said he's concocted this abduction story Mm -hmm because he can't come to terms with what happened and I think, that I've heard and the red read literature of this being a true to life thing where somebody in their early childhood for example, something so traumatic happens, it's almost like a blackout mm. where they concoct something or it's just missing time mm-hmm. because they can't cope with the reality of what's occurred to them.
1: Well, I'm very happy that you brought that up because I was reading through a Reddit thread on this film because I was trying to find any information I could on this. There was a Reddit thread of people who say they had been abused themselves in real life you know what they said this film was they didn't say it was upsetting they didn't say it was disturbing they said it was illuminating them someone said oh yeah this happened to me back then i blanked out things as well i have Memory holes, I'm missing things as well. It's like you bury that deep within you. Like I say, Neil's buried this deep within yep, him. Yep. With Brian, it's just kind of gone. It's just kind of vanished from his psyche. With Neil, it's kind of informed him more because as we as we find out, he has an attraction to older men because a lot of his Johns are men which are quite a bit older than him. I'd say decades older than him. With Brian... It's a memory hole he's- cr- concocted this fantasy he believes he was abducted by aliens because he is missing time out of his life. He's dedicated himself to creating a dream journal yep. because that's where we say about how it'd be buried in his subconscious, and that's where snippets have been revealed to him. He actually sees Neil in his dreams when they were little league uh, little league players together, right. so he's just trying to piece this back together again.
0: What I thought was one of the the greatest little particulars of this film, which kind of you know as we, that transgresses normality Mm -hmm. we've got this neil character he's become a 18 year old prostitute for these gents at the public bathroom yeah i'll say (laughs) george michael (laughs) 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 but um rather than him being completely completely disturbed by his past which he is Mm -hmm. when he was young when it shows him as a young child the pedophile takes a polaroid shot of him Mm -hmm. now Neil, as he's grown up, as he's matured, he keeps this Polaroid, not as a fuck you to his abuser, but because in some warped way, and this is the what is subversive to the damage that the actual act that the coach does, is it's made Neil think he was special. He mm. was chosen by this coach to be abused. So therefore, in some warped way, Neil sees it as one of the most special relationships he's had in his lifetime.
1: Which is a fucked up thing. It is. He even says to Brian at one point, he says uh, at a pivotal scene, he says, you know, he did this to both of us. He says, but I was his favorite. Right. So it's almost like there's a jealousy thing going and I on And h-
0: well. I have read stuff where this is actually, can happen mm-hmm. in abuse.
1: It's not surprising. It can happen in any kind of abuse. The film, The Poughkeepsie Tapes, which is this found footage movie, became very controversial when it came out. The central character in that, she's kidnapped, she's abused, she has body parts cut off, etc. She eventually gets rescued. She keeps talking about how much, oh, she, Oh, he loved me, and he's going to come back for me. It's almost like a Stockholm Syndrome kind right. of thing, developing a kind of dependence on them. And you talk subversive elements. How easy would it have been to have Neil's character out-and-out angry, alcoholic, junkie, somebody who's constantly lashing out? Well, he would have d- been he, a lot less relatable as a result?
0: Well, he does lash out, and I think he does in his own way. He's not necessarily a heroin art, down-and-out, homeless, no. but reckless sex. Mm. And his best friend, played by Michelle... Trachtenberg. That's the one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when they move to New York together, he is still tricking on the streets. Yeah. He picks up this guy, doesn't wear a condom. No, he doesn't. And Michelle rightfully says to him, we're not in Kansas anymore. Exactly. There, exactly. there you go. That's that famous, famous. A Wizard of Oz reference. There we go. I, 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 whenever I hear about Kansas, Wizard of Oz, it always takes me back to this John Waters quote. He says, who the hell would want to go back to Kansas? That, <laughs> that black and white dust ball. I would rather be in the Oz and in Technicolor. That's a very, very good yeah. one. Actually,
1: well, his friend as well even says to him, he says, uh, you know, are you playing it safe? And what Neil says is, he says, I stay in control. Not what he was asking. But he doesn't stay in control. He doesn't stay in control. No, this guy, you say like this, one of the Johns has to actually say to him, hey, put this condom yeah, on. Yeah. So it's like he's he's developed this reckless personality.
0: So has, has it malformed his sense of sexuality? Has it warped it to the point where it transgresses normally? If there's such a normal thing, but I'm on about in the... The world of this film, to where he doesn't care about his own health. It's almost in a sense a self-abuse of a relationship. I think so.
1: It's This is his way of lashing out. This is way, his way of showing to the world, I don't really give This a is shit.
0: his drug. This is his, his self-destruction. Mm-hmm. This is his
1: self-harm. Exactly. Because he doesn't cry about the abuse that he suffered, because he doesn't talk about it all the time, that doesn't mean it hasn't had a negative impact on it. It's put him on this kind of pathway. It's completely opposite to Brian's. Right. Brian's has manifested this weird kind of fantasy world where he's missing time and he's trying to fill it in because brian is a lot more clueless about what's happened because he doesn't he's not aware of it neil is and in a way it's like kind of working out what's better suppress is it just like have not having that memory at all or knowing about it but just suppressing it
0: because as we said brian has his concoction, his alien abduction story he sees on tv also this woman called Avelyn. mm-hmm Avalon, and here I'm going to put some trivia in here. Oh, yeah. a- Avalon is named that because, as we're on about music, Greg Araki. Greg Araki's is a massive shoegaze fan. Okay. Avalon is a song by the band Slow Dive.
1: Right. Now, <laughs> I'm
0: not sure, are you aware of Shoegaze? No. My no. Bloody Valentine, Slow Dive, Ride. It yeah. was this great music movement in the late 80s, early 90s. It was kind of ethereal, very feedback based, very, hmm. very cutting edge at the time. Okay. I love that kind of music, but that's that's where the name Avelyn comes from, the mm. slow dive song. Mm. But Avelyn, the character in this film, she's on TV. She's has this. She also has this alien abduction story. <laughs> she's a slightly older woman. She's still living at home. She's very childlike in a way, like Brian. Mm. Very they've pushed the reality away and they've concocted a fantasy world. Now she states in that film, I think, was she away with her grandparents? Yes, where the t- missing time occurred. Mm-hmm. Now. Is the implication that she also has possibly been abused and this is her story?
1: I think it possibly is because when you see her father at the beginning, he seems very sceptical about having this guy around. She even says he's a bit wary of strangers. Is that because they're wary of someone discovering the secret? I I I don't want to seem stereotypical here, but the idea of her being on the news talking about being abducted by aliens, you think of the whole history channel Aliens guy. You think it's one of those kind of stereotypical stories they tell. But when she says to him what happened you do start to see the parallels avalon at one point says for you and me people like us almost everything every single thing we do stems from our being abducted that perfectly explains what's happened to these two guys
0: now i think what this film does and i'm it's in the book of course i'm not trying to say it's purely iraqi's mm-hmm. but many films use metaphor as a way to give a message yeah but the whole idea the whole technique of using abduction as a metaphor for abuse Mm. is one of the greatest metaphors in film i have seen Mm. because why is it pertinent okay alien abduction let's take okay let's take the real stories quote unquote okay of alien abduction well what is alien abduction it's been taking it's being probed it's mm. being experimented on against your will mm. and allegorically that is very much what they are experiencing brian for example they have been taking they have been experimented on all against their will so the alien abduction theory is very, very pertinent to the actual abuse.
1: Mm, Because when we see these scenes of Brian when he's kind of reliving this moment from the past which he doesn't remember, we see him approaching a mysterious figure. We see this blue light. Very alien-like. Very alien-like. We even see what looks like a kind of grey alien hand on his face. So it's like he's been telling himself for so many years this is what happened. He started to believe it. Which is what, let's be honest, this is what the abuser would want. It helps Mm -hmm. to kind of Cover up his tracks, and you talk about subversive the relationship between abuser and the abused. Mm. One somebody pointed out, I think this is a very good point the way the abuser, the coach, is treated in this thing, he's not treated. He's almost not treated like a villain at all. He's not martyred. Certainly, he's not. He's not shown to be this horrible evil guy. He's actually quite nice to the kids. Well, the kids are not. Yeah. Well, yeah <laughs> well, in a sense, like you better reword that. He'll play video games with them. Um, oh, well done. You know, he'll give them. Uh, <laughs> Dodgers one there. Uh, he'll play video games with them. He'll like you know read books to them, things like this. Yeah. He'll bring them in. He'll give them food. But he's not kind of portrayed as this kind of snarling villain. He's actually portrayed as a very decent guy who happens to commit horrible acts. I think that's something that could. really rattled people but
0: that is what i also was saying to you before when you were reading like a quick synopsis and i said that could read as a hallmark of the week movie but this film it, especially with the coach who's played by bill sage mm. it's trying to move away from the monstrosity mm-hmm. and show a more a realistic approach which i'm assuming and all those things you mentioned the video games the, the snacks the, the snacks, snacks. That, in a way, is monstrous, because Mm. it is leading to the monstrosity. That is part of his grooming process. He is getting them on side. Mm. Look how fun I am. Look how I'm the friendly older guy. Mm. Come over, trust me. That, in a subversive way, that is monstrous. It is that, those very acts because it's leading somewhere and the coach he knows where it's leading mm-hmm. he's not it's not this duality where he's like oh on one hand I'm a good guy on mm-hmm. one hand I'm monstrous he's like no those minor things those friendly aspects they are part of the process of the monstrosity
1: and it's realistic it makes sense because if a groomer wanted to lure kids in what would he do would it be nasty and horrible to them no he would offer them things he would pretend to be their friend he would be kind to them that's how you lure your victims in you don't get people by being nasty
0: you've got to be aware of people who are too over friendly or too
1: quiet it doesn't necessarily mean those people are what they say they are as kids we're taught not to talk to strangers we're taught not to take rides from strangers for good reason to avoid these kind of people not saying they're absolutely everywhere there's obviously a plethora of them but in a film like this the fact is presented that way because he's not presented as this horrible you know horned beast this horned devil but he acts like a groomer would. He acts nice. He lures you in, and he takes advantage of you.
0: Which we know lately, even if like the last five or so years, Jeffrey Epstein case, yeah, Ghislaine Maxwell. What did they do? They groomed people in. They abused them. But not only did they do that, which they do, which is a point of contention in this film. They also get their victims they downtrodden the abused the ones who need somebody yeah. and they get those young people to lure the next victim in mm-hmm. and that's what he does with Neil he abuses Neil first Joseph Gordon Levitt yeah. and he gets Neil to bring Brian in yeah, on the side and
1: who else does that kind of thing cult leaders yes. that's how you attract people in that's how you bring them in that's that's just what you do if you're a groomer that's how you attract these people
0: but it's never salacious the 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 abuse scenes they're like snapshots they're like polaroid mm-hmm. shots of a point of view some of these above, some of these below, mm-hmm. or the head on the dummy chest, for example. And we're almost led to believe, okay, this act is atrocious. We already know that. <laughs> we don't necessarily need to see it. No. But what is the real monstrosity of this? situation the real monstrosity is the ramifications for brian and neil's life going into their future and Mm. that is what this film focuses on it's like okay this act is fucked up but you know what's just as
1: fucked up you fucked up the rest of their life also exactly that's not something the coach thought about and it would also create this kind of this dissonance in your mind because this person who you trusted this person who you were friends with this person who lured you in did these horrible things to you how do you reconcile that with how kind they were to you it's like how could this person have done these horrible things to me they were my friend
0: right it's not just the incident it's the ramifications it's of the be- incident it's the
1: betrayal of trust leads really? to these ramifications and
0: what are we a lot of people told as a kid which is thankfully changing a bit <laughs> trust
1: adults no don't, don't, don't trust adults <laughs> you can't just say you can't just say don't you know don't don't go off with strangers and then trust adults yeah, that doesn't make any sense yeah, well, <laughs> now more than ever everybody's learned in that now exactly now because especially with information being able to spread right, around quicker right, right. people understanding these things more because there was a psychologist who wrote a paper on this kind of abuse in Hollywood and he said mysterious skin has pretty much the most accurate representation of the ramifications of child abuse in any film he's ever ever seen i mean how much of an endorsement is exactly that? and
0: iraqi said he's, he himself said the goal of this film was to devastate people and if mm. you're wondering what he means by that he says most movies you see them and they have no impact on you and this movie i really wanted to make an impact on people and give them something to mm. think, think about and it does that because it's unsensational mm-hmm because it goes for the minutiae of Mm. the abuse, the ramifications, it makes it that more human Mm. because everybody can relate to those human aspects Mm -hmm. and because you can uh, relate to the pain that Neil earned, brian are going through you can identify in that even if you've never been in the situation they have been in
1: exactly and yes we can say most people who have i am guess most people who've listened to this they've maybe never suffered any any kind of abuse but if have had horrible things happen in the past you felt lonely you felt desperate you felt alone things like this so these are very human emotions that we can relate to and it made me think of another thing i think iraqi was trying to address it was the complexities of young male trauma this idea of Oh, you know, you get hurt, be a man, suck it up. Get, move on, move get on, on with it. That's it, just you know, just swallow and then move on. It's cause Neil seems, in a way, to have almost kind of accepted what's wrong. But Neil, Brian, has to accept it even happened in the first place because he still doesn't even really believe it happened. Which, look,
0: as as we discuss films, you have to talk about cultural zeitgeists at the moment. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, these things are starting to change. We're now becoming more aware of, like, for example, male suicide. Yeah. And the reason, you know, we don't have to hold to it as men. We can talk to people, we can discuss these subjects we can you know talk about feelings so to speak because you know it's better to get it out than keep it in
1: yeah and it's because the characters actually talk about these kind of things this film doesn't get bogged down in miserabilism. Right. i watched this film with my wife and she said something i think was quite interesting she said despite a bit of being abuse and about being sexually abused and being beaten and stuff like that she said it's an oddly beautiful film
0: cinematography that is beautiful exactly. in this film exactly. and Araki said he didn't want this to be cinema cinema veritas. He didn't want it to be handheld. Not that there's anything wrong with that, mm. but it's gorgeously composed. Mm. It's very um, scenic. It's v- It looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I think that contrasts the ugliness of the themes.
1: I think that's kind of the idea because the themes obviously stand on their own. I mean, not if you're the Australian Family Association. Can we just
0: say, fuck the Australian Family Association?
1: Absolutely. You almost got a great film banned for a whole nation. Yes. But with the oddly beautifulness, with the cinematography, with the score, with the way the film's presented, it obviously has its targets are obviously saying this is wrong these people you know they, their pain their harm needs to be addressed but it's not doing it in a depressing way there's no again big big crying scenes the scene at the end where brian and Neil Very are scene. talking they're just talking they're sat on a couch next to each other neil is relaying the story well neil is relaying how he brought brian into the abuse mm. but ultimately
0: look when neil brought brian in th- into the abuse neil himself was a child yeah the blame isn't on him he's not the adult in that situation I was gonna say, he's
1: not really taking culpability it's just he was being led
0: and brian accepts that i think because very poignant very moving and a very tender scene at the end they break into the house what is now <laughs> occupied by somebody else yeah where the abuse took place they're going through it they're reminiscing of it brian's becoming aware of what happened the the story the Fantasy, the concoction of the alien abduction is fading from his memory mm. and he's come into the reality of what occurred. And very pointedly, in the last scene, there's a Christmas Carl scene because this last scene takes over Christmas. Yeah. And Brian, after hearing this, of how, Brian, uh, how Neil seduced him, so to speak, he puts his head on Neil's lap. In a very loving way.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like he's finding comfort in this person. And I like the way this scene begins because as they're entering the house, what does it look outside? There's that kind of garish blue light. Mm-hmm. And there's this almost look of realization on Brian's face. Because whenever we see these alien scenes, it's this garish blue light mm-hmm. that's thing. So it's like this is what's reminding him of his past. It's kind of triggering those repressed memories. It's bringing them to the surface.
0: Your first foray into Iraqi. Yeah. As I said, this, in a weird way, is probably his most accessible. Mm-hmm. How did you find it? Because if you're not used to the Iraqi style, which is, his style still evident? We were talking about the colour scheme, for example. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this film?
1: I absolutely love this It's film. a great film. When you talk about style, I'm not talking about, there are some directors who have their very unique styles, which some people maybe call, say, impenetrable. Right. Like, I can see what they were going for, but the style put me off. Yep. Absolutely not with this film. The cinematography, the score, the directing style, the way it's framed, the way it's written, the way it's paced. Everything about this movie is just in service of this story. There was really thinking about it, nothing about it I disliked. It's a lean film as well. It's not too long, about hour and three quarters. Yeah. There's no scenes I felt dragged. It's an excellent film. I think it's it works as Araki's most accessible film and it would definitely make me want to watch more of his films. If somebody likes this
0: film and, mm-hmm. like you, they've never saw one of his previous films, mm-hmm. I
1: think it would logically, it would be logical to go to
0: Whiteboard and the Blizzard, mm-hmm. because there's a stylistic similarity between this and Whiteboard and the Blizzard. Whereas, if somebody's not too attuned, they might, for example, go watch The Doom Generation, totally fucked up, live mm-hmm. and end, and think, <laughs> "Oh my god, it's, yeah, maybe not for me." Yeah. The so w- I would recommend you go into Whiteboard and a Blizzard. I think if. You or the listener is like you and just saw Mysterious Skin, White Bird and the Blizzard would be the logical step, and then go backwards.
1: I think I will go on to that one. There was a word used to describe this film, I'd never heard it before, it's called hauntological. Hauntological? Sounds kind of like a, a psychological term, but it refers to the return of elements from the past as in the manner of a ghost, which is essentially characters who are haunted by aspects of their past. In films, it would usually be, say, a criminal who had gotten away with it for so yep. many years, been haunted by the crimes. But here, they're being haunted by the abuse that they suffered in the past. It's kind of come back to haunt them.
0: Well, the coach is pretty much a specter in this film, he isn't kind of he? Is, yeah. He's kind of this leering, ethereal, dreamlike guy who doesn't quite seem real. He's kind mm. of fleeted into their life and he's fleeted off. But in his wake, he's left a terrible mess
1: i think in a sense that's what maybe annoyed a lot of people the fact that the coach doesn't get punished for this like we don't know what yeah what does happen
0: as we said they break in at the end to the, yeah. the coach's ex-house which they know he doesn't live in mm-hmm. what nobody knows what happens to the coach i don't think it's ever really stated in the film no, either did
1: he what would he have f- uh f- fleed from the town did he, he flee been was he driven, arrested driven out of the town arrested something we kind of don't know but in a way it makes sense because these people have to come to terms with it on their own them coming back and talking to the coach whatever that would not put everything no, no, at ease no. they would still have gone through the abuse they would still have a hard time there was
0: nothing it. the coach could do to make amends yes, he's it, fucked up he's transgressed too far doesn't matter you, what you to don't, do, don't come yeah, back from that doesn't
1: matter what they do to them it's not It's. It's not going to flip a reset right. button in their minds they're always going to be haunted like exactly. this so it's more important that those two kind of come to terms with it together because they were the victims of the abuse whatever's happened to the coach we have no idea he's gone from the film he's portrayed as this almost this bizarre like you say kind of mythical ethereal figure but he's gone from the film it's not important that we know what happens to him or don't know but it
0: is a hopeful ending it Mm. is a hopeful ending and I quite like that Brian's come to because look Bra- the concoction Brian come up with doesn't serve him any purpose. No. He, At some point, he would have had to come to the, the reality of the situation. And by com- coming to the reality of the situation, I think it's going to lend him... It's going to be tough, but mm-hmm. he will be able to move on eventually. In some aspect, in some aspect. A, a hopeful ending, not a
1: cheesy ending.
0: Funnily, we should say this. Like, Scott Haim, the writer of the novel Mysterious Skin, he was the first to write an adaptation of this film. Mm-hmm. Never never got made, never got made. okay. But he had previously written one. Araki read that script, the Haim script, as part of the Sundance Script Committee, which Araki recommended this film. Huh. Ironically, here's the funny thing. Haim's own adaptation wasn't as faithful to the novel as Araki's was. Araki's...
1: <laughs> You're telling me he took more creative license towards his own work than Araki did?
0: Haim's version of the script solely focused on Brian. Oh. Neil doesn't go to New York, and it doesn't have the parallel parallel narrative of Brian and Neil. I
1: don't know, that would have been way less effective. Brian and Neil are kind of like the yin and yang in this situation. Araki kept
0: the novel as it was. He verbatim took a lot of the dialogue from the novel itself. Mm.
1: Yeah, that would not have worked anywhere near as well. It's important that it's kind of a kind of a two-act thing, kind of a two-piece thing because yep. they counterpoint each other very well because they go through the same thing. But I think this film is saying you can go through the same thing. A bunch mm. of people can have the same event happen to them. They can remember it differently and they can react to it differently. Right. That's why it's important to have... Two Neil. perspectives. Exactly, that's why it's important to have Neil and Brian's perspective on the situation. I think so. And we're not the only people that like this film as well. I had trouble finding negative reviews, really.
0: Give me, give me the most negative you could. The, thought, the
1: most negative phones. is someone said that the, everything just kind of mushes together, which I, I'm not really sure. of this. Yep. someone. I had a good laugh at this one. Someone called Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance uncharismatic. What? Do you think it was wrong? I think. I it think was, it's one of his best roles he's done. I think it's because it's an understated performance. It's not showy and not overblown. It reminded me actually another one of my favorite performances, Benicio del Toro's performance in Traffic. When I think of a great understated performance, that's the kind of thing I think of. Where it's not shouty, it's not showy, but it's not. Boring, it's so effective. Would you say this film is very unhollywood? Yeah, it is in very it, in its approach very un-Hollywood, but I don't think it alienates people who are interested in kind of common Hollywood. Which is why films. I was saying it's probably his most accessible for you. It's one of his most interesting, most accessible films as so. well. I think so. I Joseph so. Gordon-Levitt was great. They love the film. Trachtenberg loves the film. She described her character as like Neil's anchor, yeah. which does really make sense because they're best friends. She can't really stop him doing much, but she does kind of keep him right. keep him on ground right. zero. Yeah. We could say. So, what was the most positive, the most glowing review you found? Oh, the Psycho. Psychologists wrote the most best, best Yeah, reviews. I think so. The Rotten Tomatoes consensus says bold performances and sensitive, spot-on direction make watching this difficult tale of tra- uh, trauma and abuse a thought-provoking, resonant experience. Most of the most glowing reviews said essentially what we've said all along. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we are quite genius in our takes. <laughs> we know what the people
0: like we know <laughs> but yes let, let's let's sum this up I, I, terrific film there, yes. there's there's not a bad aspect of this film mm. cinematography is on point the scores on point the performance is on point it's just on point wait it's a fucking terrific film
1: well you're not going to hear any argument from me it was a great choice for a film and it made for a very fun episode but for now i'm wayne i'm liam thanks for joining us here in film we trust join us next week where we'll discuss dissect and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream